few reflections on on silence. A little bit, it's thinking aloud about silence. It's a subject that's been interesting me a lot for a number of months. Of course, it's always part of what we've been doing, so it's nothing new. And uh, what I have to say is stuff you all know. I'd like to talk about the power of silence. And tell you, to the best of my understanding, why I got interested in it. Over and above the fact that anyone who meditates, of course, is concerned with silence. Two things happened, I don't remember how long ago, maybe a year ago, a few months ago. Uh, I started to notice a pattern that had been going on for quite a while. Um, We know that when people begin to meditate, the mind is very wild. And silence is pretty hard to come by. Maybe you can get outer silence, like right now, where, and if I keep quiet, then we have the room is quiet. But only you know what's going on inside. And we know that when we sit down to meditate, it can be quite a while before the mind uh, weaves its way into some stillness, kind of almost like flying through the clouds to get to some blue sky. But what was surprising to me is that as people's practice got quite strong here and, and at CIMC in Cambridge mainly, I noticed that when, the, when uh, we would come up to the threshold of really deep silence, there would be a real pulling back and a lot of difficulty with it. Uh, fear, sometimes tremendous yearning to make that next step, but an inability to do it. That uh, was cooking for a while for me. And it was, is there anything that we can do other than what we're already doing to understand that? Why, uh, why is that so? Why are we, uh, if it is for you or for anyone, why are we afraid of something which at least we think is quite wonderful? Or perhaps we've had some, some taste, I think, the people I'm talking about certainly have, and I would include us. And the other was a a cover story, and I don't remember, New York uh, Time Magazine or Newsweek, which referred to the oceans as the last frontier, that is, exploration of the oceans. And we've used everything else up. I mean, we've gone to the sky, and we've uh, taken care of planet Earth, and now at least we can go into the water and find all kinds of extraordinary things there. And it uh, seemed amazing to me that this is the last frontier. Since uh, to anyone who's done any practice over a period of time, it's obvious that there is a huge field just crying out to be explored, namely us. (laughs) You don't have to go down into the ocean or fly up into the sky or move from here to... uh, I don't know where, Alaska, or wherever the, you know, now I hear Seattle is the good place to live. <laughs> Seattle and somewhere in Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
because the truth is that uh, if you've done any meditation over a period of years, probably you've had a taste of the vastness of the mind itself. Um, are these two uh, observations linked in any way? I think they are, at least in my mind. And they have consequences. The fact that we are quite capable of exploring the ocean now. We have extraordinary equipment and expertise and of course the computers are making tremendous difference. So I'm sure that we will be able to do all kinds of wonderful things in the ocean. I'm not against that. Let me give you another anecdote which I just thought of uh, while sitting here. And I think this to some degree links these two facts that many of us are afraid when we start to actually, when the mind becomes very quiet, afraid or reluctant or hesitant, terms like that. Many years ago, I studied with a, a Zen master in Korea named Byokjo Sanim. He was illiterate. And uh, he just, he's, he's shown in the dark. I mean, I know that's correct English, but anyway, he was very, very bright, great sense of humor, very loving, um, and he couldn't sign his name. And there were three Westerners, myself and two others, and we were, we were there for the year practicing, and uh, there was a break between retreats, and we were having a conversation with a translator with Bjelk Josanim. And this wasn't that long ago. This was, uh, oh, I don't know. I guess it was almost 20 years ago, 18 years, something like that. What I mean is, it wasn't medieval times. <laughs> he thought the world was flat. And the three of us, all of course, many universities, highly educated, we were taken aback. This man is a Zen master, and uh, he thought the world was flat. So of course we started to straighten him out. <laughs> and we tried first, you know, just science 1.1, and he looked at us, and he would just start to laugh. He said, it makes no sense to me. And, you know, the arguments that, why don't we fall off the earth? If it's round, how come we... And we tried every which way we could, and went on and on. It was just a complete uh, impasse. We couldn't get through to him. And he, for the life of him, thought we were ridiculous. <laughs> and finally, uh, he was the one who broke the... Uh, the trap that we were, we were all caught in together. And he said, okay, okay, maybe you Westerners are right. Uh, I'm just an illiterate old man. So the world is round, and you know that, and you understand it, and it's perfectly sensible to you, and I'm too stupid to grasp that. But does your knowing that make you any happier? <laughs> Has it solved your problems of living? Well, or, you know... It's not that it isn't worth knowing or that uh, going down to the depths of the ocean isn't worth doing. But what he was saying, uh, we came about this through a, an unusual way, but it's the same old teaching. Uh, as humans, we, can't, we don't know how to live together. We're conquering this and conquering that. We have extraordinary technology, and we don't know what to do with each other. We can't live together in peace and in harmony. We've learned nothing. <laughs>
it looks like, very little. So one part of human culture seems to have taken off and are doing extraordinary things. And then here we are, all dressed up in modern attire, and we're still at it. Still greed, hatred, and delusion rolling on. And of course, the teachings, I don't think it's unique to Buddhism, I think all genuine spirituality is saying this, you have to go much deeper into the mind. You have to let go of attachment to what may not seem like an illusion, but it is. We're caught up in the machinery of illusion, and not as a philosophic abstract notion. But when you start to really pay attention, you can see it's literally an illusion, a magician's trick. But we're the magician, and we're also the people we're fooling. And so we keep wanting community, and I think, again, I'm not, uh, I have a computer just before I say what I'm about to say. <laughs> Hardly use it, but I do have one. No, I do use it. Um, I have a friend who's a mountain climber, and he was really excited about the fact that he had online, he was able to talk to a Siberian mountain climber. They had never met, but they, they, he had a computer. And they were able to talk back and forth from Siberia. Uh, this person is not from Boston, but from around here. And he was going on and on like this, how exciting it was, and the possibilities for, com for community and so forth. Uh, and then uh, what occurred to me was, um, I knew the, the shape of this person's interpersonal relationships were, like his marriage, like his relationship with his children. And I said, that's great, you know, for the uh, Siberian mountain climber. <laughs> so I'm glad that you two are really tuned in and exchanging all this wonderful information. Uh, but what about real people face to face? You know, is, is this going to help any of that? And I, then I went one step further. I have a hunch if this Siberian mountain climber turned up on your doorstep and said, knocked on the door and said, here I am, I'm the Siberian mountain climber. <laughs> You'd probably dial 911 <laughs> and get the police there as fast as you could and not let it go beyond that. What does he want from me, etc. Okay, so uh, what the teachings are saying is that it's not that there's anything wrong with climbing mountains in Siberia or going into the ocean or all the wonderful things that the modern world has to offer. But somehow what's missing, um, we're opulent. We're opulent in terms of the external world and we're paupers inwardly. Broke, dead broke inwardly. And that's why we're here. And more and more people are realizing it. There's a certain dryness, a parched quality to the heart that no matter how good the machines get, no matter how fast travel becomes, no matter how fast communication becomes, there's still us who's doing it. And unless the person doing it wakes up and touches something a lot deeper And in the touching of that, uh, 
lives from a place that has much more wisdom, compassion, clarity, light, uh, it'll be the same go-around over and over and over again. So in one sense, the history of the world is magnificent. In another sense, nothing's happened. Nothing, nothing, nothing's changed. Okay, to get back to silence. I would say, uh, as I started to try to understand why we, and I would say it's not just the West, I think it's a modern thing, and people have always had some difficulty coming up against the frontier of silence if they've approached serious meditation practice. But I think our time period is such that everything is, uh, the momentum is against us. In other words, the culture virtually has no provisions, no recognition of the fact of the depth of human consciousness, of what's really there. In other words, we don't know the good news. I mean, there's something extraordinary that each one of us is born with. No one got shortchanged. And yet, it might just as well not exist because we don't know it's there and we don't do anything that will take, it, take us there. So at first I was thinking, well, step number one, we have to understand the search for silence. But really, there's no search unless you think there's something worth searching for. When you think of, of life itself, life is to be lived. I would think, forgetting that, if we threw away all the ideologies, all the religions, all the philosophies, and just had to decide for ourselves, okay, what do I do now? I think it's we have to live. That seems obvious. We have everything is, points to that. Okay, what does that mean to live? Well, we have a body, we use that. So that's part of what we can equate with life. We talk, words come out, they come from more subtle energies inside, which we call thoughts. And all of these three are intertwined. And that's what we give our attention to. And the, the construction, outwardly, construction of objects, homes, a place, endless. So there's a lot, and that's what we, what we equate life with is that. Now, what I think is being suggested by all the teachings, certainly the Buddha's teaching, is that if you, this is an image that might be helpful, think of a, a field, a vast field, an infinite field. I would say that what we as humans are doing is we're cultivating one small corner of it. We're doing a fantastic job of that corner of a field. And yet there's a infinite vastness that is just there. But we're not looking in that direction. We're not doing any of the things that enable that to come to fruition. Because we don't know what's there. Now, I know that a lot of that's not true for us. People who are here uh, obviously are not typical. To begin with, just our simple practice with conscious breathing, often the way we talk about things, is the mind quiet or is it noisy? Uh, the Tibetans have a phrase for the first step in realization, in a sense charting this path of calming the mind. They call it attaining the cascading mind. 
which sounds like a, what, what kind of a, an attainment is that? <laughs> but it is, because what they're saying is, to me, something quite uh, wonderful. They're saying is, you're finally seeing that your mind is like a cascading waterfall. I mean, it's wild, noisy. If you don't even know that, then your course of action is going to be very, very different. So they're saying that uh, this cascading mind, this wild mind, is the mind that all of us start with. Apparently, we're able to be quite responsible, be very successful at work, lead countries, jobs, raise families, do all kinds of things. And the mind is really wild. It's wild, it's in conflict, it's confused. So we are getting things done. But if we take a bigger perspective, right now here's a smaller perspective. I am going to get to our practice. <laughs> I don't know if this seems remote to some of you. There's a Jewish joke. <laughs> a man go has a wonderful uh, piece of cloth. And he goes to his tailor and said, could you make this into a nice suit for me? And the tailor goes through all kinds of special measurements and uh, he's a very good tailor and finally he's ready and he says come back in a week so he takes the measurements starts working it the man comes back in a week and he says I'm not ready come back another week okay this goes on come back another week finally it's six weeks and finally the suit is finished and he gives it to him and he says my goodness it's a beautiful suit and he said, thank you. And he said, but you know, it took you longer to make this suit than it took God to make the world. <laughs> so the tailor said, yes, but you just saw my suit. Have you taken a look at the world? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think we can get too cocky about our great intellects and our great uh, theories and all the rest of it. Because when we look around, somehow the way it is is an expression of how it is inwardly for us. All of us are doing it. I, we're not special. We're all doing it to each other. Confusion begets more confusion. And I think a retreat like this is a, uh, an attempt to, to go sane. You know, to finally even put up with all this, all the silence and everything that we do here and give up so much comfort. Assuming that silence interests you, and I would say uh, for most of us we have, to begin with, a rather limited understanding of what silence is. And that's why I think people who practice like ourselves have a hard time when we get uh, up close to some real silence, highly charged, very, very consistent stillness. We're not prepared for it. We worship thought, for example. You could say we're addicted to thought and all the creations of thought, which I just ran through a few moments ago. And for us, silence, we appreciate silence, living in a quiet neighborhood. We like that. From time to time, finally the children go to sleep and the TV is shut off. It feels nice. The hall here, we go to special places. 
where it's quiet, that's nice. The refrigerator stops gurgling, and suddenly it's not as quiet. So there are all kinds of little pieces of silence that when we get, we appreciate. We go into our room, perhaps we've had a hectic day, and we close the door, and it's quiet. And we have nice things to do to quieten ourselves a bit more, like read a book, perhaps write to a dear friend, draw. We're still using the mind. If you look at it, when we drive up here, we've come probably from, to some degree, a busy situation, most of us have, and it gets quieter as you, certainly as you leave Boston and get closer to, to the town of Barrie. When you come into Barrie, it's very different than Cambridge. Then when you come here on the grounds, there's a noticeable change. It's a very different vibrations altogether. And then the retreat begins. We have all these rules to try to help us maintain, protect the silence. External. And then we start our practice to kind of go a little bit deeper, internal silence. So we're doing less with our bodies. We're not talking. Hopefully you're not reading, writing and so forth, because you know how to do that. That's what we do all the time, and we get a certain amount of solace from it, a certain amount of joy from it. But the purpose of us coming here together is very, very different. Please understand that. When we say don't read, if you can, ideally don't read, etc., uh, we're not just trying to be mean. It isn't some kind of just austerity for austerity's sake. These are external attempts to guide the mind to a place that's beyond thought. It's not easy, as you know. So step number one is, I think for all of us, modern people, uh, at least conceptually, to understand that in back of all the accumulations of civilization, the most wonderful ones, there's a vastness of stillness and space that's unexplored. And those who've traveled there and shared their message with us, and those who have tasted it even a little bit, know it's good news. Again, it's not that, uh, although at first it may seem that way, it's not to reject thought and all that thought does. To begin with, perhaps we have to make fun of thought, we have to reflect on it, oh, a thought is just a thought, which is what it is because we're so uh, in bondage to thinking uh, that even the silence is something that we think about and concoct, conjure up some notion as to what it will really be. And we get tastes of it. We have a few m moments of quietude as we practice. The breath awareness concentration exercise is one good way to begin to get us into the early, give us an early taste, an hors d'oeuvre of silence. There's much more to go, because that's a concentration technique. Coming back to the breath over and over again, it's invaluable. But it's also to some degree contrived. 
It's a necessary contrivance. It helps us uh, at least temporarily quiet the noise, the constant thinking that the mind does over and over and over again, even in the sleep. And so if we get a taste of a certain kind of peace and joy that comes from a concentrated mind, what comes along with that as well is a certain inspiration and faith in the practice. By the way, faith is very, very important when it comes to silence. Faith and understanding death. I found, at least in my own practice, very important, vital. If we don't get to it tonight, we'll get to it uh, other evenings. So some of what we're trying to do here is to, uh, we have a social arrangement where we're making our way on an interior journey, moving beyond what we know of as silence, outer silence, relationship silence, setting aside books, setting aside relationships in a certain way, temporarily. I know many of us have come up with husbands, wives, lovers, friends, please, uh, it's for your sake. Learn what it's like to be alone when all of the sources of reassurance are taken away from you. And what you're left with is you. If loneliness comes up, that's your practice. It's not that that's getting in the way of practice. That is the practice. If we don't learn to face loneliness, we'll die with our loneliness. It won't go away. There are many ways to smother it. None of them work. If they worked, we wouldn't be here. So that's why you hear us saying, and you'll hear it more and more, especially as the retreat unfolds, the important thing is not the particular acquisition of a certain mind state, even the silence, but rather uh, learning how to fully experience life, the vividness of life as it moves through us. And whatever that vividness is, and sometimes it's loneliness, sometimes it's fear. But it's true. It has a certain dignity because it's true. It's right there. And little by little, no one's being pushed, it's not being pushed in your face, I hope, but little by little, we're trying to all encourage one another to face our lives as it is. Now, uh, the road to silence is through the noise, because there's another kind of silence. I would say that the deepest silence in the mind comes not from concentration, as important as that is, as a help. It comes from understanding. When the mind begins to understand itself, it's that self-understanding that brings a different kind of stillness altogether. It doesn't bring stillness. The stillness is already there. It enables you to let go of that which should not be attached to if you want real peace. And when you do that, the stillness is just waiting. Now, the, the thing with stillness is that it's not easy to come by deep stillness because It's very shy. And if you are, have any designs on stillness, want to use anything in order to get it, or want to get it, it will slip away. 
crawl under a rock, run off into the woods, but avoid you. Really, the only time stillness comes out is when we stop trying to make it come out, when we have patience and love, particularly love of stillness. Now, I get uncomfortable with the word here sometimes because uh, it can be a trivialization of what really that word is pointing towards. In other words, the word, the English word stillness, means when everything else gets quiet. And what's the biggest thing to get quiet? Who is the, no the biggest no noisemaker in town? The, the noisiest kid on the block? Me. You. I mean, for me, it's me. For you, it's you. In other words, the ego. The ego is what is uh, keeping us awake all the time. Okay, now let's get back to uh, a yogi who's been practicing along, following the precepts, getting their house in order, doing sitting meditation, walking meditation. And suddenly, and it seems often, uh, it's hard to come to even get within the threshold of the kind of stillness I'm talking about, uh, except on a retreat, at least to begin with. Not impossible. People have come to it in the strangest ways. But for most of us, we need help. And a good first start is realizing that you need help, that we've over-cultivated one little portion of this huge field called existence. And yet we know, in our heart we know, we have an intimation or we have deep faith, or we've seen bits of it, we know that there's something extraordinary awaiting us, if only we could allow it to be. Okay, and yet we come up and we sit, and on a retreat which maximizes the possibilities of this happening, we come up against it and then we become frightened and run away. think here, what can we do to, to help ourselves here? One thing is to reflect on thought itself. This is an ancient method. Those of you who have done the mental notes, uh, the Mahasi Saido style of practice, mental notes can be very helpful that way in that whenever thinking happens, thinking, thinking. And after a certain point you start to understand, oh, I get it, a thought is just a thought. That's right. It's there all right but it's there as a thought. It's a package of energy that is just what it is. But if you don't see that a thought is a thought, we then imbue it with all kinds of reality that isn't there. And then we have a universe that we've created, a world that we've created. So some of that is helping is reflection. Sometimes reflecting on, uh, here are a few that have helped me. One is that thought is mechanical. It just kind of happens. It comes out of nowhere and goes to nowhere. That can weaken its hold a bit. Another is what helped me is understanding that the thought has been conditioned into me. You know, we're so proud of our thoughts, our wonderful mind. Uh, we got it from our ancestors. You know, we added a few flourishes here and there. The vocabulary changes with each generation, a few new, different subtle perceptions. But it's just an imprint. 
we've been conditioned, habit energy. And then we just merrily live out what the thoughts tell us to do. We give it immense authority. You could say we worship thought, or you could say we addict, we're addicted to thought. It's a supreme addiction. Also, thought is limited. That's an important one to see. The description is never the described. Whatever you try to describe with words, even the greatest writer, greatest poet, they, but more than anyone, know that words are sort of a desperate attempt of us humans to comprehend what uh, raw life is. And good writers have that ability to bridge that gap between the ineffable, ineffable and what seems to be convincing. But then we make the mistake, we fall in love with the words. As Buddha pointed out, the finger pointing to the moon. We fall in love with the finger and we never see the moon. So spiritual words have their place, but they're pointers to go in this direction. So uh, we have to, uh, assuming we know there's something valuable called silence, then we need help to move in that direction, to enter into it. Once we enter into it, to learn how to stay there, to how to allow it to nourish us, uh, to uh, be at home there. In fact, I think you could say it is home. Our practice, and I think I'll maybe, uh, uh, I'm not sure there's more to be said because uh, a lot of words about silence is a bit of a contradiction, but I hope that some of it can awaken you to understand if you have some inhibitions about it, if you have some fears, to look into those fears. If the mind gets quiet, if you've tasted some silence, and it's been valuable for you, then why do we run away from it? Why don't we give our very best to allow ourselves to drink deeply? What hampers us? What handicaps us? Why? One method that we're using to try to make it very concrete, breath awareness. What is actually happening there? Something very simple and ordinary is going on, in, out, in, out, in, out, and the instructions are to bring our full attention to the breath. Not the word or the image, but that raw experience. Now, as you know, as soon as you try to do that, the mind, having a mind of its own, is all over the place. It doesn't want to be there. It wants to think and plan and worry and fret and compare and uh, judge and, uh, you know, all the things that our minds do. So this approach to help us taste silence says as soon as you notice that, very gently ease back, come back to the breathing. Okay. If you do that with some continuity, minimize the leaks of energy, which is another way of saying the same thing. Continuity means try to keep the current of mindfulness alive throughout the day. 
It's like uh, lighting a fire. If we rub wood together and just as it's getting hot, we stop. You can do that a million times. You still won't get fire. Whereas if you can just stay with it just a little bit longer, something happens. It's a qualitative change so that you now have fire. And awareness can become like a fire. And it can burn through everything. It's only a, a metaphor. Don't get frightened, some of you. But that's what it can do. Now, in Thailand, they have an interesting way of looking at it. In the forest tradition, they talk about uh, it is, let's say, if you have no samadhi, because it's another language for what I've just said. If the mind has no samadhi, it means you, the mind is untrained, very little concentration, which I think is where we all start. Then it's like a homeless person. It's like somebody who has to sleep on the streets, vulnerable to the elements, to robbers, etc. And then they talk about different gradations of the building materials, from bamboo to wood and finally a brick house. And a highly concentrated mind gives you a place of some silence, some solitude, some quietude, some peace into which you can crawl or be uh, to protect yourself from the elements and so forth. You have a home. Now, it's not the final home. The Buddha found that out in his own journey when he mastered all the skills of concentration and so there was more to go. But it's a very, very good beginning. Now, when you look at what goes on, you'll see that I could talk from now uh, for the next thousand years. The mind, uh, and we're all intelligent here, the mind will still nod, uh-huh, right, and then it will prefer to get entangled in all the creations of the mind rather than just be with a simple breath and taste joy, even after we've tasted the joy. Let's say, and here a certain kind of inquiry can help. Let's say you've already at times dropped into some stillness and felt, ah, oh, so wonderful, even as 10 seconds of real peace. It's worth the whole retreat. And then your eyes open and you walk outside and everything is so alive. So it would seem sensible to do those things which strengthen that. And then let's go the other way, which is what we have so much practice doing. Uh, the mind throws up notions and ideas. We go running right after it, like a dog running after a bone. And very rarely does it lead to peace or fulfillment. Very rarely. There are some nice thoughts, some nice ideas, and some skillful uses of the mind, of course. But so much of living in that thicket of entanglements, mental entanglements, or the machinery of, an, of illusion is not fulfilling. If it were, again, we wouldn't be here. We just think up a good life and live there. And so, little by little, it becomes uh, clear seeing. It's a kind of insight where you begin, oh, I get it. Every time I attach and hold on to these thoughts, they take me on a trip, and when I come back, I'm exhausted and battered. And when I do a simple thing like in, out, in, out, in, out, not too romantic, Hmm, suddenly it feels wonderful. There's some peace. Now, somehow making that connection can weaken the power of the conditioning 
which we may not even realize we're under. I think people here do. After all, liberation is first and foremost liberation from what? From ourselves, from our own mind. And it's this that I'm talking about. So learning how to just transfer some of that energy, some of that enthusiasm to a simple neutral event like an in-breath and an out-breath, little by little shifts the balance of our commitment of energy. And we wind up seeing uh, that we can be taken to a place that's rather fulfilling. And more and more we're able to, fight to get there rather effortlessly and to uh, refresh and renew ourselves. This is, in other words, the whole approach of shamatha meditation. We wean the mind from all of its obsessions. We give it one thing to be obsessed with, the breath. And little by little, uh, if we do it properly, uh, little by little, the mind learns, becomes tame. It learns how to attain a certain happiness and its condition is such that it's now fit to look more deeply into what is going on. In fact, all of those events that have tyrannized us before, which we said, thank you very much, I'm going back to the breath. Thank you very much, I'm coming back to the breath. We couldn't take on, in one sense, those other mental events because they're too powerful. We drown. So what we do now is we substitute one object, along with other things that we're doing, of course, walking in our yogi job and so forth. And by moving to that one object, we recondition the mind so that it's fit. And what it's fit to do is to look into itself. And now we're ready for a giant step towards stillness. So let me leave you with a reflection. It's just a simple one. One translation of enlightenment, one way of talking about it, is, is it's called the Great Stillness, capital G and capital S. There are all kinds of small stillnesses that we've tasted. And so you can see that there's a lot coded into that word stillness. It's much more than that simple English word can possibly mean. Maybe we'll move a little bit further into that next time. Could we have a, a moment's sitting, please?
This talk was given by Larry Rosenberg at Insight Meditation Society on July 6, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.